0: kick on the air. It is Sunday night, December 27th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We are jam, jam, jam-packed tonight. We've got our college football playoff prediction special, not just previews. We are predicting games here tonight. This show comes around once a year. Really excited about it. So obviously, how could you be anything less than jam-packed? We're going to give you Bama, Notre Dame, thoughts, preview, prediction against the spread and outright, as well as Clemson and Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. All that plus, I've got some more thoughts on Brian Harson going to Auburn. And it really doesn't pertain just to Auburn. It really pertains to the entire sport of college football. There are a lot of things you're being told right now that need to be fixed about college football. Half of it's made up. There are a lot of other things that are actually wrong with college football that are not being told to you. Now, if you have common sense, if you open your eyeballs and you really pay attention You've probably noticed them. But some of you are very casual fans, or maybe you're fans of programs that this hasn't happened to. And so it kind of it kind of is off in the ether, but you don't really realize it. It's it's bad. And it really affects college football. And I'm glad Auburn did something to try and rectify it, at least in their little corner of the world. So I'm going to talk about that as well. Uh we've got a lot to get to. Do not miss anything on the channel this week. There's been a lot going on in Nashville. So First and foremost, the reason I'm not sitting in a studio in Nashville right now is because, well, we had a bomb go off downtown. And a lot of you, dozens of you actually, were hitting me up over the weekend and over Christmas and asking me, was I all right? Well, first, I appreciate that. So Director Colin and I are fine. Colin lives a little bit outside of downtown. I live right smack dab in the middle of downtown. That bomb was about two or so blocks away from my apartment. And I have not been home. So I was in Columbus, Georgia. I'm back home for Christmas. So I was watching that on the news along with you guys. I think we had some like window damage to my place. Uh, I haven't been back up there, but all internet is down. So a lot of people are struggling to do work. You know, that's the least of your concerns after a bomb goes off, obviously. But I have not been back home because I can't get work done up there. So that's why the show looks a little bit different right now. I'm still in Georgia doing the show. So, uh, you know, Director Colin and I decided since the tornado didn't take us off air and we were still able to get shows in when we got hit by a tornado earlier this year and COVID hasn't taken us off air can't let a bomb right at the end of the year take us off air. So we're going to work straight through the bomb here. But uh, in all seriousness, um, keep the folks, especially first responders and whatnot, and people working that scene, uh, keep them in your thoughts and prayers because there's that's a tough, tough situation to be in. So I'm very fortunate and blessed. I wasn't up there when that happened, uh, but a lot of people I know were. And so you know, just just kind of be mindful of that. All right. So another thing to keep in mind as we dive into the college football playoff preview here. The Ramen Noodle Express is still rolling. The Ramen Noodle Express is rolling right into bowl season. And in fact, it's caught back to its usual fiery self again. Uh, We hit Georgia State the other night, and there are more coming. However, I'm not going to put them on this show tonight. You're going to need to be following me on Twitter, at Josh, because we've got them released on there. I've released several on there already. Um, You can go back in time and look. I'm not tweeting like 15 times an hour, so you won't have to go back that far. But that's where the picks will be. Off the top of my head, I know we're on Wisconsin pretty big, but I don't want to... And and the over in Ohio State and um, Clemson at 66 and a hook, I know we're on that. Can't even remember all the games. So you're going to want to follow me, at Josh. All right, with that in mind, let us dive in to tonight's show. So I wanted to uh, just flip a coin for the college football playoff predictions. And the coin landed on Bama Notre Dame. So let's start it off. A Rose Bowl, one of those ultra rare Dallas Rose Bowls, you know, the old sunset right over the interstate, just beautiful. Your grandfather probably told you about those Dallas Rose Bowls. Haven't seen one in quite a long time. And by that, I mean ever. But here we are, Alabama, Notre Dame. It's the Friday early kick. It's the 4 p.m. Eastern time kick on ESPN. Bama is favored by 20 points, the good old 20 spot here. Uh, Let me start with this. Okay, there's a number of different directions we could go. The Landon Dickerson injury for Alabama at center. How big a deal is it? Well, it matters. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Alabama or elsewhere, don't let anyone tell you it doesn't matter. It really matters. How much? Is this a three? Is it a nine on the one to 10 scale? How much does it matter? That's the question. And so what I have in my mind is I think it'll matter. Like I certainly think they lose a little bit of thump in the run game there. I mean, Landon Dickerson was a really good two-way pass pro run blocking. Like he he was plus in both categories. Chris Owens is likely his replacement there. Chris Owens is a serviceable backup. Chris Owens is a starting caliber player for a number of teams at the power five level. So the only thing I'm worried about with them, and I don't think it'll happen because Owens has got a lot of playing time. Would we have any unforeseen problems? I mean, would they have snapping problems? Would they have just leak after leak after leak on the interior that disrupts the timing and rhythm of Alabama's offense? I don't think we'll see that, but that's what you would watch for early in the game. There is a lot of Florida to Notre Dame right now. I don't think you know where I'm going with that uh, because I tried to think of a way to put it that sounded different than anyone else has said it because everyone else is just focused on Notre Dame, but I always like to draw parallels. So Florida and Notre Dame are kind of in similar positions to me. I think that Florida may be a little bit ahead of Notre Dame though, chronologically. So think about this they both have this in common. They both got over really major hurdles that heretofore seemed kind of insurmountable to the outside world. Florida, were were they ever going to get over Georgia? Well, they got over them. They beat them emphatically actually in the, well, in the SEC Eastern Division in the regular season, they beat Georgia. And then you had Notre Dame and time after time after time, they're Cindy Lauper style. They're trying to beat the big boys and they finally get Clemson to come into South Bend and they beat them. And so you're over the big hurdles But then what happens? Well, what happens is Florida gets later in the season and they just inexplicably drop a game to LSU and then they got beat by Alabama. And so now it's almost like some Florida folks have this one step forward, two steps back kind of mentality about how they ended the season, especially since Georgia ended the season hot too. It shouldn't matter, but it does matter. Well, we're not talking about Florida, but what about Notre Dame? See, Notre Dame, they just had a big setback against Clemson, but they're still in the playoff. What if they, let's just entertain this for a second. What if they were to get beat by Alabama by three touchdowns? That's roughly the spread. So they lose 42-21, somewhere in that range. Your last two outings, after having validated yourself seemingly at the beginning of the year or in the middle of the year, will have set you two steps back. And it will feel a lot like years past. And I don't know that that's going to happen. I'm certainly not ready to predict the game quite yet. That's what the video is all about. But just think about that. Because it's really funny how perception can change and can surge and wane week to week. I'm going to assume that the upset is possible here. If you've watched or listened to the show for a while, you know anytime we're entering one of these games where it's got a big fat point spread on it. Well, the first question we ask is, could the upset happen? Well, this is a playoff game. So yes, of course. I mean, Notre Dame is capable of beating Alabama. Is it likely? No, Well, the point spread says no. Uh, but could it happen? Yes. So we're going to go with that. So let's dive into actually how this could happen. Because, you know, there are only two times, if you watched every Bama game this year, there are only two times where they felt fourth quarter heat. And that was, one of them was obvious, Florida. Uh, the other one was Ole Miss. Those are the two times. It wasn't against Georgia. It wasn't against a It was against Ole Miss. But neither of those teams could get a stop. There was no point in those games where you watched your TV screen and said, all right, that Todd Grantham defense for Florida, they're going to stand up right here. That Ole Miss defense, they're going to stand up right here. That was never the case. And so it was a different kind of feeling. Even though though Alabama, the scoreboard told you the game was close, as long as their offense kept going out on the field, as long as there weren't these series where Several onside kicks were recovered, or something like that, you did not feel like they were in legitimate danger. Well, that leads us to the natural following question, and that is can Notre Dame's defense get some stops? Like, how many stops can they get? Do they meet that freeze point that we talk about a lot? Because I'll be honest with you, Georgia's defense, when they played Alabama earlier in the year, was at least comparable to what Notre Dame's putting on the field right now, and Bama put 41 on them. Texas A&M had a very high caliber defense, and they do have a very high caliber defense. Bama put 52 on them. So you figure, I mean, if I'm being conservative here, and it's crazy to say this, but I think I'm being conservative when I say, I think Notre Dame would need 38 to to start entertaining the idea of winning this. Like if I get Bama full four quarter effort, I don't know that you're holding them under 38, but let's just say 38. Okay, let's let's say that puts you on the outside fringes of being able to possibly win the game. And of course, if 38 points is winning it for Notre Dame, that probably means a couple of turnovers have gone your way too. So at first glance, you look at Notre Dame and you think to yourself, and I don't know that you're wrong if you think this, you think to yourself, ran the ball good against Clemson the first time we played them, couldn't run it worth anything against Clemson the second time we played them. Well, this Alabama defense, they haven't stood up against the run particularly well this year. We should have some success running the ball, especially between the tackles. Okay, hey, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong, but in order to do it consistently and in order to actually give yourself a winning blueprint, doing that, you better be able to create some run pass conflicts, especially for those linebackers. And what I'm thinking here is I'm thinking about the things Alabama doesn't have to be scared of with Notre Dame. Uh, there are two things in particular that they don't really have to fear. They don't have to fear the vertical element. At the quarterback position, and they don't have to fear perimeter speed at the wide receiver position. But what you do have, if you're Notre Dame and your offensive arsenal, that maybe has given Alabama and would give any other team in the country some fits, is size and physicality and pass catching ability at the tight end spot. You got several of them there, actually. And so I sat there and watched Kyle Pitts catch, I think, 25 or 30 passes over the middle uh, last week, whenever the SEC title game was against Alabama. You start to do that a little bit, then maybe you loosen that box up and you can run on them. Because this is not a stone wall Alabama run defense. But if they don't have to fear certain elements, and history tells us if you don't have that precision assassin type quarterback and they don't have to fear that, even if they look like they may be a little bit down relative to Alabama standards, they can clamp down on your run. And even if you do run it successfully in open field, you get down inside the red zone, things are going to really truncate very quickly. So just kind of think through that. And then also consider how unfamiliar the territory is going to have to feel if Notre Dame is in position to win it. They make you, they being Alabama, they make you do stuff that you're not comfortable with if you're going to try and win the game. And the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, if you were to picture this, not hypothetically, let's put ourselves, you and I in the position, you and I are sitting in the stands Um, we got one of like however many 16,000 tickets and it's not the first quarter. It's not three to nothing Notre Dame. No, it's the latter portion of the third quarter and it's 27 to 26 Notre Dame. Okay. At this point, it's anyone's ball game. It's less than a half a football to go until the final bell. What are you going to have to do? You're going to, you're going to take their fastball for the next uh, 15, 20, 25 minutes How are you going to withstand that? Well, you got to score pretty much every possession. That's what history tells us. But also, here's the unfamiliar territory doing just that, feeling like you have to score every possession. Also, you're in a position where sometimes you got to entertain ideas like going for it on fourth down in your own territory. You got to do stuff like maybe onside kicking when you certainly wouldn't want to do that. That kind of stuff. I'm just telling you, the book, the book, maybe the way that you got here, not always applicable. In these kind of games, if you're going to win this kind of game against Alabama, so it's it's not impossible, but to do it, you really have to shave off some of your identity and put on a new mask, even if it's just one night only, just just one night only, new mask. There are two dam breakers here, and the dam breakers are not just Notre Dame problems. Uh, Alabama gives a lot of people these problems, but of course you cannot like your athletic matchup with your corners, your defensive backs against their wide receivers. That is not a knock on Notre Dame. No one likes that matchup. But there are some future NFL guys that have been humbled in this matchup defensively. And the second one, and this is the one that I worry about and I really worried about it with Notre Dame against Clemson too is Notre Dame's offensive line with the injuries now specifically versus the interior for Alabama's defensive line, and a guy like Will Anderson on the edge in the pass rush. And the reason I worry about that is because you have to score and keep scoring. You can't go on any kind of drought. You can't have three and outs. You can't do that. You can't get behind the sticks second and 16. You just can't let that stuff happen, even, even two or three times. Um, again, that's what history this season tells us it takes to compete with this Alabama offense. So, Colin, let's take a look at the game capsule. We didn't have game capsules for... Conference championship weekend, and a lot of you almost rioted. So, Director Colin has been so kind as to put the game capsules back together, and this gives you an idea of what our model thinks versus the Vegas odds makers. It's really hard this year. You've never seen a year like this before. We have no cross pollination, as I like to call it. There are no comparable data points. There is no way to know, in other words, the kind of the ultimate strength of one conference versus another conference. And so we're having to rely on a lot of individual metrics and power ratings, the kind of proprietary stuff that we prefer to put in our model. Uh, Having said all that, Bama minus 20 in the desert, Bama minus 18 is our model's number on this game. And so I'm going to follow the model. I'm going to take Alabama to win this game. I am going to lean ever so slightly to the Irish plus 20. This is not a game that I will be wagering on personally. It's not a game I would recommend you wagering on, at least when it comes to the traditional side here. I don't really have a feel on the total either. But for the video's purposes, give me Alabama to win. Give me Notre Dame plus 20. Now let's head. Uh, normally we'd have to have, well, I guess we were going to Rose Bowl to Sugar Bowl, we'd have to head like 2,000 miles east. Now, well, we got to head down to Houston and over on I-10 to New Orleans. So it's still a little haul, just not quite as bad. Clemson versus Ohio State. Primetime game on ESPN. It is eight o'clock Friday night. It is the Sugar Bowl. It's my most fun bowl game to go to. They feed you, in my opinion, better than any bowl game on planet Earth. It is wonderful. I had a taco bar down there last year that was to die for. I mean, I really, I almost died. I've never eaten like that in my life. And uh, that has nothing to do with the game. I just wanted to share that. So, Ohio State is a seven point dog in this game seven or seven and a half, depending on where you look. There's this conversation out there right now that I think is pretty laughable, and the conversation goes a little something like this. Maybe you've heard it, and I hope you haven't participated in it. But if you have, it's not too late to it's not too late to change your ways. The conversation goes like this: mm, Clemson's played in what eleven games, however many games they played in, and Ohio State's only played six. That means they're going to be fresher. No, friend. No, no, no. Now that the games have been played, and Clemson's not badly banged up, uh, all that's out the window. Ryan Day would gladly trade his team's portfolio with Dabo Swinney's portfolio. Because there's something that Clemson's been able to do that Ohio State, through no fault of their own, it's just the hand that fate dealt them hasn't been able to do, and that is work out the kinks and find a groove. There has been no opportunity to find a groove. Ohio State, it feels like they've played about one game in the last half a year. And so what I don't like about that is they haven't had to taste their own blood. They haven't been pushed It's just, again, it's not their fault. It's just the way things fell. On the other hand, there is one thing that you can like about this, and that's the ambush potential because we have not seen Ohio State's best game. I know it. You know it. They know it. Dabo knows it. We have probably seen Clemson's best game. Now, Clemson could play five of those games. It's not like they have one of those in their bag. But Clemson's probably hit the stride they need to hit right now to give them an optimal chance to win in the playoffs. They have perfected that formula. Ohio State, there's no way they could be there. I mean, if you were to think back, what did Clemson look like six games into the season? They weren't where they are right now. So it's no different. It's not like this is an Ohio State problem, but we'll see. Because with that comes the ambush potential. And the ambush potential is simply this. It's kind of like Oregon with Southern Cal a couple of weeks ago. Southern Cal was favored in the Pac-12 championship game. And I picked Oregon. And my simple philosophy there, and it was kind of a guess, there's no really, there's no real model or computer guidance system that can tell you this is coming. I just thought Oregon's a more talented team than the product it's put on the field, which means its best game is still out there. If they're ever going to find that best game, it would be in the Pac-12 championship game. Well, we can apply that to Ohio State. If they're going to find that best game, wouldn't it stand a reason it'd be in the college football playoff? We'll see. You're also going to hear a lot of Fields versus Lawrence talk. I won't participate in that because they'll never be on the field at the same time. A lot of NFL draft types will talk about it from that angle, and that's okay. That's fine. I'm going to talk more about Fields and Lawrence uh, because they're two of the main reasons we had college football this year. Don't ever forget that. Do not ever forget that there will be people actually in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome this Friday night covering this game that gave zero assistance to getting this sport off the ground this year, covering two young men who gave pretty much everything they could possibly give to get this sport off the ground this season. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Applaud both of them. Don't really care who wins and loses. uh, Because uh, those two used a really big platform. And actually, I'm telling you, talking to some people kind of after the fact, that stuff went a long way in getting the sport to actually happen this year. All right, let's talk about the game itself now. Red Zone. Is probably where the padlock stat's coming from. The padlock stat on late kick is the stat where if you were to give it to me on Thursday, I guess in this case, if you were to give it to me on Thursday, I'd know who was going to win. Will you let me know, red zone, and probably even more so than in a normal game, it's going to determine this one. Two points to keep in mind when you're watching the Sugar Bowl Buckeyes, Tigers here. Number one, Clemson. They watched Trey Sermon go crazy in the Big Ten Championship game, just like you did, just like I did. The guy is probably still running right now. Here's what they know. Brent Venables probably looks at that and he says, all right, that's fine. We're not going to shut him down. We don't need to. What they know, they being Clemson, is probably Sermon could run for 220 yards this Friday night and Clemson still win the game. And the reason they feel that way is because of the same reason they were able to, you know, in several instances, but most famously, a couple of years ago, I remember being out in California at the national championship game in um, a place that had no business hosting a championship game in the sport of college football. But I digress. There, There was no endless taco bar in Santa Clara. Let me just say that. And so Alabama was moving the ball up and down the field against Clemson until they got in the red zone. Then guess what happened? Bad, bad things. That team with with Tua tonga Bailoa and Jerry Judy and Devontae Smith and Henry Ruggs, first-round draft picks all over the place. They put 16 points on Clemson because they couldn't get it done in the red zone. And Brent Venables, not an overly prideful guy that night. He said, we're going to give up some yards, but we're going to win in the red zone. And that's exactly what they can do this Friday. They can give Trey Sermon 220-plus rushing yards. And as long as they shut him down, hold him to threes instead of sevens, or force turnovers in the red zone, It's all good. But see, the shoe on the other foot, it still applies here too. Because Ohio State, they know, they know good and well, they're not good enough to match their corners. This year's version of Ohio State does not have the corner talent to match up with big time wide receivers. They don't. They've played soft coverage all year because of that. It has not been a traditional Ohio State pre-snap look in their secondary. Buckeye fans have picked up on this. If you haven't watched them closely, you will see it Friday night. But having said that, you get that compressed field down in the red zone, and all of a sudden you're not worried about someone going 50 yards over the top of your head anymore. So just as Brent Venables and company have to do against the run with Ohio State, you're thinking the exact same thing if you're Ohio State against what could be a very lethal vertical pass game. That's what bit Notre Dame last week. What do you remember, by the way, about this 2019 game? I intentionally haven't referenced it yet. I want to reference it now. Uh, This game last year, I thought the better team didn't win the game. A lot of people shared my opinion there. Now, Clemson fans shouldn't care about that one bit, uh, nor do you. I get the sense. Because you won the game. That's really all that matters. I happen to think Ohio State was the better team. I was also a little bitter because I picked them, and I wanted to be right, and I wasn't. But what most people I have found remember about that game is they probably think Ohio State got jilted to some degree by the officials, or you remember... You know Ohio State was driving and they threw a pick in the end zone to pretty much seal the deal. That's not what I remember, though. I certainly remember those things. But here's what I remember. I remember a 16 to nothing lead for Ohio State. And having, if you believe in momentum, having all the momentum in the world and Clemson, to their credit, still finding a way to get off the deck and come back and win that thing. How did Ohio State build the lead? They built it with tempo passing game. That's how they built it. And that was kind of atypical to what they had done through the regular season. Now, what does that mean for this year? Do they go about it the same way this year? Because Justin Fields, with the wide receiver talent he has, and it's very important to note that because they haven't always been on the field this year, but you got Wilson and Olave, and you've got Justin Fields there, you got talent in the backfield. If all of those elements are in place, The ceiling for what that offense's potential is, is way higher than most teams when you measure their average versus what their maximum potential is six games into the season. Like what Ohio State's offense has put on the field so far this year, there is a ceiling that is significantly higher than what you've seen. In other words, 22 points versus Northwestern, I think they're capable of more. They didn't need it that day, but they're capable of more. How much higher is that ceiling? Big question that we have to keep in mind going into Friday night. The intangible factor here that you can't ever quantify on paper, obviously, is I I have seen elements of a killer instinct for Ohio State. Like Trey Sermon played with a killer instinct. Ryan Day coaches with a killer instinct. I don't question individuals on that team that have it. But if you've watched Clemson play, like their whole team has it, they have that, it's in their DNA most Ohio State teams have it. I haven't seen it from this Ohio State team yet. That's one of the perils. Everyone's telling you it's an advantage to have only played six games. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because that stuff, that killer instinct stuff, it, sometimes if you're going to develop that in the season, m- sometimes you can't develop it. But sometimes an identity morphs in the season and Ohio State hadn't had time to do it yet. They just haven't. And the other intangible factor to keep in mind here is Clemson has this innate ability in these big games, these playoff caliber games, well, not caliber, they're just playoff games, to make 50 50 balls become 70 30 balls or 80 20 balls. Uh, E.J. Williams is a kid who played just across the river from where I am right now over in Phoenix City, Alabama. Came from the same high school Justin Ross did at Central of Phoenix City. Drove past it last night. Um, he is the kind of guy who could explode on the national scene in this sort of environment. It's the kind of thing that Clemson has become famous for. They peak at the right time, and all of a sudden you're just watching their wide receivers make circus catch after circus catch on third and seven. And you've done everything you can to get the offense behind the chains, and yet they're just what, what should be a 50-50 deal is a 70-30, 80-20 deal. You cannot know that's coming. There's just no way to know that's like f- forecasting turnovers. You you can't know it's coming. All right, Colin, let's look at the game capsule here. Uh, This one's really tight, obviously. The Las Vegas number has Clemson minus seven. Our late kick number, our in-house model here, per 1,000 simulations of this game, we've got pretty much right on the number, too. We've got Clemson minus six and a half. I, I, you know, I've felt both ways about this game over the last week. When I first saw the number come out, I was leaning Buckeyes. That's without breaking anything down. Then there was a moment where I thought I was going to go Clemson by double digits. I have settled on, well, a compromise of sorts. I'm going to take Clemson to win the game, and I'm going to take Ohio State at anything plus seven or higher. So give me the Clemson Tigers to win it, but I think it's going to be a tight game. would not shock me at all to see a point spread upset here. I'm going to take Ohio State plus the points, take Clemson to win the game outright. All right, we move on here. So um, I talked to you the other night, but it was just an individual clip about Auburn hiring Brian Harson. Guy from Boise State, he's now coming to Auburn. It's completely different climate, both uh, in terms of weather and in terms of culture and all that, blah, blah, blah. We, we have time to talk about that. But man, I need to circle back around to this because it seems like everyone had something to say. Well, I got something to say too. In fact, I got halfway, not fired up, but I mean, I'm pretty invested in this. Like I grew up in the South. I grew up really near Auburn. I've watched them mismanage things internally for a little while. So let's just talk about this. So here here we go, Colin. Here's a clip for individual VOD use. So Auburn has hired Brian Harson. Touched on it already, but I really want to dive into this a little bit. Here's what I want to dive into. Outsiders probably do not have a firm grasp on how significant this was. You're thinking, all right, Brian Harson? Like, that's a name that was way off the radar. Even Auburn people weren't talking about him. Great, okay, they hired him. Like, what's the big deal? Coaches have been hired before. They'll be hired after this. That's true. You need to understand the uniqueness within the Auburn sphere, within the world of just Auburn athletics and Auburn football, and then how it applies to the broader context of college football. What happened at Auburn over the past week could very well have implications that reach out and touch your program. If you're a Texas fan, if you're a USC fan, if you're a Tennessee fan, it could impact you and impact you in a positive way, hopefully. Now, there's an acronym. All right, once again, my Auburn listeners, my Auburn viewers, you've probably heard of the acronym it's J-A-B-A. It's JABA. It's just Auburn being Auburn. And that's something that the locals use to describe when things are being bungled and you can see it happening a mile away. And they just, they don't like it, but they also know historically they've really had no control over it. And so they just roll their eyes. Here, here we go again. That's essentially the attitude. Here we go again. That was in the process of being put in motion. And then you, Auburn fans, and... Alan Green changed all that, the athletic director there. When you're told that things are hurting college football, do you listen to that? Because you've heard it a lot lately. It's mainly in the context of the college football playoff. Like There are a lot of people out there who want you to believe the playoff is hurting college football because the playoff has given a rise to the haves and a a widening between the gap of the haves and the have-nots. And there are a lot of things that you're told are hurting the sport that I don't really believe are hurting the sport nearly as much as just general incompetence is hurting the sport. I'll give you an example. I'm not a believer that the college football playoff hurts college football nearly as much as garbage targeting rules hurt college football. I'm not a believer the playoff hurts college football nearly as much as coverage of the college football playoff. If I could just adjust the way that things covered, I think we would do away with a lot of the problem you have with it. I've already made that point. That's another video. You can find it on the channel. But now let me circle it back around to Auburn. Here is one of the big, big problems that exist and have and will continue to exist in the world of college football, and that is non-football people making football decisions. The very lifeblood of this sport is money. You have to have it. You have to have it to survive, to build those fancy facilities, to have these staffs and to be able to pay these staffs. You gotta have money. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Federal government's not giving you grant money to run your football program. And so a lot of times it's private donations. And unfortunately, those donations come with earmarks, and those earmarks as say access. That's the kind of earmark that normally comes along with those checks. And it creates this culture where you got a lot of people who have rightly made their fortunes in other areas where they have some expertise in most cases, thinking that that makes them an expert in football matters, basketball matters, whatever the case may be. And it's this weird situation where you would never see a football coach walk into a bank or a car dealership and just start calling the shots. But yet you got folks who own tons of car dealerships or who are, you know, multimillionaires from the banking world. They will gladly walk into an athletic department and start thinking they deserve to call the shots about who's going to be hired to run a football program. It's the craziest thing in the world. So Kevin Steele, the Auburn defensive coordinator, was well on his way to getting this job because of just that mechanism being put in place. John Talty with AL.com, I think, did a really good job summarizing what was happening behind the scenes. And I talked about a lot of what he put in his report on late kick. I was detailing that. I told you about Steele. That was in motion. Like there are two things that could be true here, guys. That could have been in motion. And then it could have also been derailed. And there is no doubt in my mind that the athletic director there, Alan Green, let it be known. uh, Another word for that is leaked. That Kevin Steele was in line to be the head coach. There was a major push behind the scenes by the kinds of characters that we're talking about right now to make Kevin Steele the head coach, just elevate him to the job. And Auburn fans, I firmly believe, changed the course of history for that program. And then the president there, Jay Goosh, stepped in and he kind of stamped legitimacy onto this thing. When he backed Alan Green and Alan Green said, I don't like the way it's going here. I got your backing. All right, we're going to have an actual coaching search. That is why, in a nutshell. So many Auburn fans are already in love with Brian Harson. Like, you got folks who didn't know who he was two weeks ago that love him right now. Well, he's not yet coached a football game. He's not yet landed a recruit. How could you love him? Here's why they love him, and here's why it could pertain to your program, even if you're not an Auburn fan. They love him because they know for the first time in, quite likely, their lifetimes, they directly contributed. It's almost like they made the hire. And it's not that they made sure he got hired. It's they made sure someone else's choice didn't get hired. Whereas in the past, it would have been Kevin Steele. And they would have looked around and said, I don't like it, but there's not much I can do about it. Well, now they did something about it. And that's why they love Brian Harrison already. And in the past, you know, they would have gotten a result in spite of what they wanted. Now they got a result because of what they wanted. Now that's a catch-22 sometimes. Because Tennessee fans pulled this with Greg Schiano and got Jeremy Pruitt instead. I'm not so sure if you look at that proposition right now, it makes a ton of sense for Tennessee. So you got to be careful with that. But that kind of brings us full circle now. What does this have to do with your program? Well, I'm telling you right now, it could be Tennessee, or it could be Texas, or it could be Southern Cal. How many people are watching what's happening in Auburn here? How many people watched a very entrenched culture here get turned on its ear? and have an actual football search by, for all accounts around Auburn, an outsider. Alan Green's not an Auburn guy. He didn't play for Auburn. He didn't grow up in Auburn. He's an outsider, but yet he came in. He's in the athletic director spot, and he actually played the role of athletic director, which is uh, painfully rare in these situations in the South sometimes, at Auburn, no less. So if I'm watching that in Texas, if I'm watching that at Southern Cal or Tennessee, I'm taking notes because here's what we got to ask ourselves. Is it going to cost you something? Most of the time, people in uh, at least nameplate power positions, they kind of cave under pressure here and they do it because they think it's going to cost them. We can't afford to alienate Booster X, Donor Y, and we can't do it because we need their money. I got you. And listen, this is going to cost Auburn. You better believe it's going to cost Auburn some money. In the short term, it will. Uh, winning cures a lot of that in the long term, but let me ask you this. Independent of what Brian Harson ever does on the field, I'll talk about that in a second. Independent of that, what are those resources worth if the earmarks attached to those resources lead to really handcuffed programs? Auburn, in particular right now. What does it really matter? It doesn't. It doesn't matter how. M- if you're printing money, but you're using it to run your program into the ground, then the money's not really worth anything. No one cares. So I don't know how Brian Harson's going to do here. I, Brian Harson, for all I know, is not going to work out great as Auburn head coach. But I'm telling you right now, if you keep the blueprint in place that you use to hire him, eventually they'll get it right at Auburn. Now, for their sake, I hope they got it right here, which leads me to this final point I wanted to address. And that's a lot of folks I was hearing from that said things like, well, he has no SEC ties. You know, he's never recruited down here. He doesn't know the lay of the land. Listen. Um, there are examples, historically, of guys who came in this conference. Nick Saban had never darkened a door in the South before he did. And then he won national championships at LSU and eventually Alabama. A guy named Urban Meyer. I mean, what kind of pedigree did he have in the South? He had been where? Bowling Green and Utah. The bottom line is, those are two generational coaches. I'm not comparing Harson to that. What I'm saying is, if the guy is legit, he's legit. If he's the real deal, he's the real deal. And he'll come in here and he'll develop relationships and he'll build a staff that knows how to attack the recruiting trail and understands the JUCO circuit and understands uh, the the high school contacts and the networking you have to do. He understands how to play the game. He understands how to coach the game. And if you got that in your back pocket, there is this crazy ability that coaches have to adapt. It's what they've done. It's what they do. It's It's in their blood. They do it their whole careers. If he's the real deal, he'll succeed down here. And if he doesn't, then he won't. But I can tell you right now, if Brian Harson fails at Auburn, I don't think it's going to be because, as one person put it, oh, he's done nothing but face Hawaii and Wyoming every year. Like, he would never win down here. Well, I got news for you, brother. He gets to play with a team that's got a little bit better roster than the one he played with at Boise. All due respect there. You play in the South, you get to recruit in the South. That's why it never made sense to me, these people arguing Boise would never win the SEC. Well, Boise would never be in the SEC. Because you're in Florida and Georgia and Alabama, and they're in Idaho. Like, if you put them in the SEC, they get to recruit Southern talent. So now Brian Harson's going to get to do that. So it remains to be seen. Again, I am almost fired up for it, independent of my expectations for him on the field. Like, I've got questions just like you do, but the bottom lines are Auburn hired a legitimate football coach. They went outside the culture to do it. And I hope it pays off for him, because if it does, it'll kind of push what I hope will be a trend over the next 10 years of getting football-minded people in the room more so than just hangers-on in the room to make these decisions. Like in the NFL, you have got football people hopefully making personnel decisions. In the college football world, you got dudes and you got ladies from all over the place that have no background in football, who's pocketbooks allow them to make decisions and that's why so many programs are horribly mismanaged right now and that's why you got a few elites that figured out how to run it the right way and you got a bunch of others that should be elite that aren't but instead of taking personal responsibility instead they just want to tell you oh the system's broken the systems what's holding us down no allowing clowns to make football decisions because of what they're worth that is what's holding you down a whole lot more than any system has ever held you down I've spoken my piece now on the college football playoff. I've spoken my piece on Auburn and how you make a coaching hire. So with that in mind, I think I'll wrap the show up now. I appreciate you listening. Make sure you subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter. Going to be a very busy week at Late Kick Josh. At this very moment in time, I don't know how we're doing the Tuesday show. I mean, we plan on having one. I don't know if I'm going to be in Nashville or still down here. Uh, still up in the air. So having said that, either way, I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, the Late Kick podcast is flying. It's went well over a thousand five star reviews on Apple podcast. And I thanked you already. But in case you missed it, I want to thank you again. Not only did we go past one thousand, you guys got a little carried away, to be honest with you. We went past twelve hundred. So I don't know if I should have said two thousand this whole time. That's an early 2021 goal there, I guess. But thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for supporting the show, uh, supporting us in the process. It really means more than we could ever put into words here, I can assure you. So for Director Colin and Producer Jordan on the podcast side of things, I am Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your week. It is playoff time and we are pumped. Until then, thank you so much. God bless.